by showing you actually the latest satellite picture of Slow down. Of course, in the news business, speed is considered crucial. We journalists are under pressure to get the story quickly, and better yet, get it first. But more and more, we are wondering what is behind those headlines of the breaking news. I'm Nana Wilhertz, and I present to you the first edition of a breakaway group of young journalism students in Aarhus who have hit the brakes. In our new show, Slow News, we'll give you an alternative to the mainstream media. And more importantly, we give our reporters, but also you, our listeners, time to investigate and understand a news event in depth, seek out untold stories, and present different angles. We value meaning over mere information. But what is slow news really? So how would you explain uh, slow news? I've never heard of it before. Um, but I assume it's, well, it's obviously news, so it would probably be, um, well, I have honestly no idea. It sounds, like, it sounds like a weird concept because news have to be um, brought out to people quick. Otherwise, it wouldn't be news anymore if it's yesterday's news. So slow news is probably more about the delivery of the news, about if it should make sense to me, it would have to be going in depth about some sort of news topic. And uh, really, and explaining it in a way that probably takes time, but make sure that a um, normal person would be able to understand it. Uh, my association with slow news is like the, maybe the paper in Denmark called Setland who takes um, topics uh, which is not um, high actual in the press but is something they want to explore more and um, and they make long uh, series of articles or uh, vox pubs or questionnaires or something about a topic they run for a long time maybe that's my association I think that maybe today's news I will call that fast news maybe because it's like an um, a picture of the world today but it's just uh, like the big cases you just have the all the big disasters and it's like you don't get to see all the some of the cases that is maybe matters more so maybe slow news could be more about like the small things in life that some things that you don't think about or some things that you have to that are like necessary to actually speak about and to be reflected about so now we've heard what other people think slow news is um but what do we think here in the podcast and why do we think it's so important to talk about slow news and to do a whole podcast about the topic why do you want to be a journalist? This is a question I, Melin Lafabri, have been asked many times, actually more than I can count. And part of me understands why. It's one of the list like profession. It's said to be a broken industry. You have to work extra long hours. The paycheck is not that good. And there's a serious problem of trust towards everything that comes from the media. And yet there's this other part, the bigger part, which tells me that this is what I need to be, what I need to do. Uh, we live in a globalized world. I guess this is not news to you. It means that regardless of where and who you are, you are connected to the rest of the world. 
These connections, are obvious or discrete, direct or indirect, include many factors from numerous different backgrounds and types. The list goes on and on, but one thing is true. It's a complex place and it can seem really messy. And here are the journalists trying to let you know what is happening in the world to help you understand the society you live in. Let's be honest, we haven't been doing a great job at it lately. Somehow we started to think that getting you the information as quickly and as concisely as possible was the best way to do journalism. Being the first to get you to talk about an event became more important than giving you good information. We send you notifications all day long and every event is breaking news. All this info coming your way make you feel overwhelmed. How many friends of mine have told me they don't understand anything that's going on and because of that, they've stopped reading the news. And it doesn't really matter where you place yourself on the political spectrum. Everybody is very critical toward the media nowadays. For those we haven't discouraged yet, we try to fit all the information we can in 140 characters. So one tweet is enough to give you the feeling that you are informed. But by trying to simplify everything, we lost the purpose of what we're doing. Simple isn't accurate. And to describe a world as complex as ours, accuracy is absolutely necessary. Now, don't get me wrong. This kind of journalism can be good and useful, but it's not enough. Once you know what's going on, when and where it, it happened, we need to slow down. We need to give you all the information so you can fully understand what happened and make links with other events you've heard of. This is what Slow News is here for making the world more understandable, taking time to contextualize an event, including different points of view, giving a voice to people from different backgrounds, showing the human behind the stories, making sense of it. So when you hear breaking news or see a notification pop up on your screen, you know what we're talking about. And if you want, you have access to longer and deeper materials on the issue. Slow news also means being able to distance ourselves from the headlines and taking time to focus on matters which are left out from the public attention, either because it's too far on a cultural or geographical scale, too complex, or it's been going on for too long for people to consider it interesting. I believe the people I write for are smart and curious. I believe you are interested and want to understand what is going on. I believe you care and deserve better. Slow news is not here to replace breaking news. It's here to complete it, to make sense of it, give you as many tools as we have so the world can be more understandable and feel a little less messy. At least, this is what I'm here for. This is what I have to answer to people asking me why I want to be a journalist. Now, of course, we're not the first journalist thinking that slow news is just as important, if not even more than breaking news. Jennifer Roach is one of the leading researchers when it comes to slow media, and Juliet Frazen got to ask her some questions. For each podcast, I, Juliet, will present a human that might not be put in the spotlight but still does a lot, someone that might not be heard in the media but who plays a key role in our society. And who's better to start than the American scholar Jennifer Roach, who just published her first book titled Slow Media, Why Slow is Satisfying, Sustainable and Smart. And I had the chance to ask her some questions. So first, Jennifer, could you give us a definition of slow media? What does it mean? What are the main ingredients? Slow media has a couple of components that are intertwined. There is a set of values and also a set of practices which go hand in hand. Some of the values are being attentive, contemplative, self-reliant, present on the part of the person who's using it or making it. 
And the media themselves tend to be long-lived, sensuous, tactile, eco-friendly, fair-traded, and also democratic. So that's the philosophy or the perspective that goes with slow media. The practices that put that philosophy into action are, not surprisingly, finding a new appreciation for print and analog media, which means producing and consuming more things like vinyl, typewriter, zines, as well as printing presses, radio, or a slew of other forms. This usually goes along with the second practice, which is using less digital. People find that they get more enjoyment out of print and analog and that they don't need digital as much as they used to think that they did. Slow media also means that people tend to reconsider the role of all media in their lives and that they often use less of it generally and try to balance their lives with more firsthand experience or unmediated communication. And then the third is that people use all media, including digital, print, analog, in slow ways. That might mean monotasking, you having less alerts set up on your devices, checking your email less, or taking more time to respond to messages, to think about what people are saying to you and how you want to reply, rather than giving the knee-jerk quick response. Okay, and do you perhaps have an example of a slow media? I'll point to the British magazine Delayed Gratification that publishes every three months. Each quarterly issue covers news that happens the previous or the penultimate quarter. So the October issue reports on what happened in April, May, June. Whereas most news is made to be disposable and focuses on breaking news, their idea is to turn that time delay into an asset that by waiting three months, they can give you a more comprehensive and authoritative view of what happened in the world. It avoids guesswork and predictions about why something matters. The magazine design is also beautiful. It's not made to be disposable, but rather to be an artifact that you keep. And what brought you to become a scholar and a defender of slow media? As a journalist, I started out writing for alternative news weeklies in the 1990s. It was a time when those kind of publications were probably at the height of their cultural relevance. It always seemed that news weeklies and the alternative press generally were more connected to their local communities, to activists and to artists than mainstream news was. Also that they seemed a little bit less formulaic than other news sources. And I know for me as a reader, as an audience member, I enjoyed reading them more than I did other sources of news. So that's partly what spurred me to become a media scholar and a media critic in the first place was to try and figure out why it is that people perceive alternative news sources as being better than mainstream ones. I've spent most of my career as a scholar exploring that question. Interesting. And then you started to write your blog name Slow Media, which resonated with a lot of people. What are the common frustrations they share towards mainstream media? There are so many of them, I barely know where to begin. The two main ones that I'll start with are going to be commercialism, of course, and the influence that advertising and ad sponsors has on news as a product. Most people sense that a lot of compromises are being made there. And of course, that audiences are being addressed as consumers, as buyers, more so than as citizens or as fellow human beings. There's a saying that if you don't pay for a product, that you are the product. And that's certainly true of a lot of media. The second one, 
Going hand in hand with that is the role played by corporate or profit motives, that basically there's an imperative to keep costs low and that over time, all of the news functions that are expensive, that are time consuming, have been trimmed, trimmed, trimmed. And that a lot of the news that we're getting now is just opinions or talking heads because it's pretty cheap for a TV studio to just plop a bunch of people down with microphones and ask them to pontificate about what they think the news means, as opposed to having foreign bureaus with international correspondents running around the world, talking to people on the ground to find out what's happening and revealing new things. Alongside that, we have the issue of quantity versus quality, that a lot of people sense that there's so much news available now, but that a lot of it is just repeated, a lot of it is redundant, that there's not enough original reporting or in-depth reporting happening, that pack journalists sort of all swarm to the same events and that a lot gets left off of the news agenda that way. And of course, related to that is the reliance on press releases that a lot of research shows that 30 or 50% of some news organizations' stories are ultimately derived from press releases that are sent out by businesses or by organizations that are trying to shine a positive light on what their business is doing. Not to say that press releases aren't a legitimate source of news, they absolutely are, but that there may be too big a piece of the pie. And of course, when we talk about mainstream news, a lot of people are specifically talking about TV news whose shortcomings are very well known, their reliance on drama, on visuals, on fear, and news sources like CNN, Fox, and local news are definitely privy to that kind of behavior. I should add too that a lot of this is um, rooted in a progressive bias that people have that most of the people that I've studied personally have been progressive or liberal-leaning audiences, but that more recently I've been starting to look at conservative audiences, the alternative right, of course, and that both groups of people, despite ideology, seem to share a lot of critiques of mainstream news media. So you consider slow media as a part of a bigger slow movement, and especially the slow food culture. But how can you apply slow food ideals to the way we produce and use media? The first question then is, what are slow food ideals? Some main principles would be making things with care, taking an ethical responsibility towards the things that you're making, and also doing it in a sustainable way. Sustainable is a word that I use throughout the book as basically a synonym for slow, that when we talk about doing things slowly or about slow food or about slow media, we're not really talking about doing things in a languorous way, about merely taking our time, but rather we're capturing all of these ethical values and especially the slogan, good, clean, fair. It's a phrase that the slow food theorist Carlo Petrini came up with that kind of embodies what the movement is all about. The one that most people pay a lot of attention to is the good, that slow food is about things that taste delicious, that are of the highest quality, but that really the clean and the fair aspects of it are the ones that give it its ethical power, that it's not just about the pleasure of eating and of having materially pleasurable things in your food environment, but also of having them be made in a way that doesn't hurt other people and doesn't hurt the planet. So you can say the same thing about slow media. It's not just about having news that's extremely well reported and that's written in a lively, engaging way that makes you want to dig into it. It's also about reporting in a way that is clean, 
that doesn't harm the environment and that hopefully does things that are going to be helpful towards our ecological system and also doing things in a fair way, being fair not only to the people that you use as sources, but also to the people who are readers and to the journalists themselves. This is a developing frontier in the slow news movement and in the journalism scene generally, the big problem being that there's so little money to be made and so few journalism careers nowadays that people can't make a living at it. They can't pay their bills. And it's discouraging a lot of good people from going into the field and from staying in the field as opposed to migrating to other related areas like public relations. So I think that the slow media movement has a lot to learn about slow food, about how to more closely tie our activities to the ethics of sustainability. So less is more, right? I guess it resonates with what you did a couple of years ago when you spent six months without any digital media. Could you tell us more about this unplugging project and how did it make you rethink your consumption of media? The unplugging project. So I started planning that in 2009 and my concept was kind of that I would pretend it was 20 years earlier, 1989, before the rise of digital media and the internet and email and CDs and everything else. It was kind of an extreme way of breaking habits, of getting myself out of the default mode where you do things without thinking, and instead trying to use media a little bit more intentionally. It was partly driven by the idea that I wanted to be in control of what kind of life I was leading and the way that I was prioritizing my time. You've probably heard the statistic that the average person spends three hours a day watching television or spends most of their waking hours using media. And given life's finite resources, I just thought, wow, is that really how people would choose to spend every day of their lives if they were doing it in a more thoughtful way? So for six months, I didn't use any digital media. A key part of it was that I gave myself a one hour allowance to use the internet each month. So I would keep track of how long I was on the internet and I would sort of strategically plan how I was going to use that time. And it made me realize what my real priorities were for using the internet. Maybe not surprisingly, it was professional or financial obligations. There were a lot of alternative ways of communicating with people that I loved or you know, relaxing or recreating in my spare time. A few things that I learned from the experience were one, that I didn't need media or the news quite as much as I had assumed that I did. And also a corollary to that was that I didn't feel out of touch, oddly enough, that I managed to keep up with current events through conversations, through reading newspapers and magazines and other sources. I guess, you know, there's that principle that work will expand to take up as much time as you let it. The same thing is true with media. Your media use will expand to take up as much time as, as you let it. Um, and in that experiment, I was trying just to keep, my, keep it in, inside its own bounds. Moving on to another aspect of your work, you talk about slowness as a form of cultural resistance. Do you think slow media is an alternative to mainstream media who usually favor breaking news? Or does slow media offer another yet compatible perspective on the news? Is slow media an alternative to mainstream media? Absolutely. Is it a substitute for it? I would say no, it's a supplement. 
that we need both alternative and mainstream perspectives, that one helps shed light upon the other. At a basic level, I would say that slow media is about cultural resistance because it's about adding some friction to your experience of media and especially of commercial media. It's an advertiser's interest that you speed up, that you see more ads in the course of a day, and that you reflect a little bit less on the messages in those ads. At the same time, slow media isn't the only form of alternative that's available to the mainstream environment. There are other movements happening simultaneously, like solutions journalism or constructive journalism, that are spurred by a lot of the same impulses as slow media and that overlap them in a lot of ways, although have distinguishing features of their own. Okay, now final question. What would be the benefits of slow media for a journalist and for the audience? And since it is our first podcast and you're an expert of slow media, could you give us advice on how to produce and consume and consume sorry, slow news? Well, there are tons of benefits. On the audience side, slow news can help you understand the world better because it typically provides more context, more analysis, that it explains how and why things happen rather than just telling us what the breaking news event is and helps people understand the causes and effects of things that are going on in the world. For journalists, the main benefit is that journalists get to do the kind of journalism that most of them wanted to do when they became journalists in the first place. They get to ask better questions. In that sense, slow news isn't really a new phenomenon. It draws on other things that have been around for a long time, like investigative reporting or long-form storytelling, things that publications like The New Yorker are well known for. What is new is the business model, however, that Slow news today is a lot more dependent on members or on subscribers, on the people who use it, than used to be the case, that they're typically less reliant on ad subsidies. However, that makes their business model ultimately stronger and that they're responding to what their audiences want and not what their advertisers want them to create in terms of a news climate. So my word of advice to audiences would be much as they say in the world of slow food, to know your farmer. Audiences need to know their journalists, who these people are, why they're making the news, and what their philosophy is. I don't think that's the case. One of the things that frustrates me most about the conversation happening right now about fake news is that a lot of the public seems to ascribe such sinister motives to people who produce journalism. There's this idea that journalists are just driven by ideology or by political or financial gain, um, rather than what I know to be true, which is that most journalists have extraordinary goodwill towards the public, and they're motivated by curiosity and by the needs to serve democracy and make their communities better rather than all of these selfish motives that people seem to think that they have. So just as audiences need to know their journalists, journalists need to let themselves be known and make sure that their audiences know what's driving them. If that happens, then I think that'll open the door for a lot more slow news projects to happen. Well, that's exactly what we aim to do, try to make our world as transparent as possible. So thank you so much, Jennifer Roch, for enlightening us about slow news and slow media. Remember to check her new book, Slow Media, Why Slow is Satisfying, Sustainable and Smart, for more in-depth information. We've taken up the task of delivering to you slow news. 
In doing so, I, Denita Dimitrova, am inspired by a form of constructive, in-depth journalism that appreciates the need to take time to understand the world and its complexity. Why is that, you might wonder? To answer this question, I invite you to consider an idea with me. And this idea is how we talk about the world shapes how we experience it. Or, in other words, how we present the news shapes how we see the world. Allow me to elaborate. One single story told differently has the capacity to breed completely different points of view on the supposedly same objective reality. Think about it. Cinderella's story would differ completely to her stepmom's version of it. And frankly, calling her stepmom evil is really a matter of point of view. It's all about perspective. And after all, this function of storytelling is what lies at the heart of political propaganda, too. It isn't a coincidence that media has long been the handmaiden of politics. Stories can be a powerful political tool. We all know the gist of it. Think about it. Imagine you hear about the Palestine-Israel conflict for the first time. Would it matter which side of the conflict presents their view first? Then imagine we now add other perspectives, other layers of understanding. You hear the other side's version. Has your initial understanding changed? So in short, yes. How a story is told will shape how you experience reality. Now, to make matters more complex, imagine you've now taken a crash course on the evolution of ideas about nationhood, the history of the Middle East, etc. Will this new knowledge change how you see the conflict? Probably. Because the more you know about an issue, the more difficult it is to resort to simplistic explanations. So why does this matter? Well, it matters because we as linguistic beings know the world through language. We are rhetorical creatures who internalize stories and then see the world through them. And while this might not be so important if we argue over whether or not Cinderella is right in calling her stepmom evil, it certainly matters when we talk about Palestine or Israel. The form of journalism we commit to here in Slow News appreciates this. Our goal is to discuss the news intelligently, by avoiding simplistic explanations and instead presenting multiple perspectives on the same issue. We know that journalism is an inherently ethical endeavor because it holds the power of framing the world for others. And this comes with responsibility. And today, of course, more than ever, we have access to an infinite pool of ideas from every part of the globe. This comes with potential dangers. Dangers of reifying complex issues to simplistic explanations that are so often used to advance populism, ignorance, and hatred. We realize these narratives too can shape experiences. And here we want to avoid this. We want to battle the unintentional effects of rushing through complexity. And this requires us to slow down because stories are powerful. So now we have dived into the concept of slow media and why we as journalists believe that it is so important. But what about all the stories and events that do not make it to the headlines? It seems like only a couple of crises make it to the mainstream news. Syria, finally Yemen and perhaps a bit of Myanmar. Media display tragedies with shocking pictures. But as a consumer, I don't nearly understand what is really going on in those countries. More difficult yet, I can hardly imagine what it means for the people living there. Meanwhile, the world's most lethal ongoing conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo, several hundreds of dead and political prisoners in Nicaragua, Burundi on the edge of another civil war, 
and constant human rights abuse in Mexico, Venezuela, the Central African Republic, Tibet and North Korea, just to name a few. All these nearly never appear in Western media. The daily journalism race seems not to have time to dig deeper into those crises, some of them already lasting for decades. Conflicts are mostly complex and political. Editors often think they are therefore too difficult or too far away to explain to the audience. But isn't this just a cheap excuse? I, Luisa Estomogabo, joined Slow News on Planet Mondus to prove that it is possible to not ignore the people in those conflict zones. I want to take my time to understand those issues myself and then to present them to you. I have already lived and worked in the region of the Great Lakes in Africa. My focus and personal interests therefore lie mainly on the Democratic Republic of Congo, Burundi and Rwanda. The people in Eastern Congo, for example, deserve our attention. They are struggling to survive in the war on a daily basis. But they also deserve to be seen as humans, just like you and I. Also in a war zone, there do exist daily routine, innovation and love stories. Do you know, for example, what a Chugudu is? On another note, I am convinced that we can do better in reporting, for example, on the political and human crisis in Burundi. The few existing journalistic pieces in the West often use outdated, stereotypical structures to explain the situation. It is said that counting the year 2018, we have to say that also African countries like this small hilly nation in the east of the continent should be looked at as any other state in the world is. The current threat to Burundians has nothing to do with our all-time explanation of ethnicity and tribalism in so-called savage Africa. Instead, it is about politics and economy. This might be more difficult to analyze, but it is more true than any reproduction of colonial perspectives. Being a journalist, I am not freed of my responsibility. In contrary, I am given the tools to raise awareness in a responsible way. Not for the sake of breaking a headline, but for the sake of humanity. I believe it is important for us to confront ourselves with the tragedies of this world, even if it hurts. Because forgetting crisis means forgetting humans. Now we've talked a lot about theories. What is Leon News or what should it be? Why do we need it? Why are we doing this podcast at all? So let's get practical. What does Leon News look like in real life? Louisa Hi. and me, Valerie, will show you some of our favorite examples. Just before this, Louisa was talking about the violent conflict in Congo and that no one really talks about it. And I think, Louisa, that you want to share a really good piece of slow news on this. Yes, indeed, Valerie. Um, it's a very long piece on the origins of war in the Democratic Republic of Congo that was published in The Atlantic by Armin Rosen. The war in the Democratic Republic of Congo is a war that has been ongoing for a number of years now, but it's still underreported. But the journalist, Armin Rosen, really goes into depth in explaining the many social, political, economic and historical elements that shape this very complex war. He bases his piece on his own experiences of traveling in the country and talking to people in different regions. And what exactly makes the conflict so complex? Well, 80 years of Belgian colonization, 50 years of dictatorship and now 20 years of conflict have left the country in a very weak state. It has also left room for a variety of actors to take control. Rosen explains that the government has no authority whatsoever. The absence of the state makes it possible for militia groups to control the country and to sustain the violence. 
The east of the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, is very rich in minerals that the global technology and defense industries are interested in. With the absence of political leadership, armed groups are free to control the mining sector, for example, and to set the tone in the country. In that way, being part of the militia also becomes a way of surviving in the country and not following the law becomes almost normal. Violence simply becomes a vicious circle. That does sound very complex. Uh, how did the journalist get such a deep insight into the whole complex conflict? The article is based on interviews with a lot of people and a very detailed description of the environment. So I guess uh, the journalist must have spent a lot of time in the field. But I also noticed that part of the article was funded by Oxfam America. That made me wonder about the motivations for the article. Yeah, that's interesting because the question is, is there really not enough funding for articles and do they need help from international development organizations like Oxfam, for example? And yeah, should journalists still take the opportunity to do that? We'll leave that for you to think about it. And now I would also like to share uh, one of my favorite pieces with you. Um, also in this podcast, we were talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict and how complex it is and how much it matters and who tells the story matters as well. The international media outlet DW managed to show this complexity, but also makes the conflict very understandable so that you can relate to it. The podcast I'm talking about is called Pulse, a message of peace in the Middle East. And, as you probably figured, it's about how people, in this case young people, try to bring peace to the region and peace between Arabs and Jews. What's so special about the, the podcast? What makes it slow news, in your opinion? Well, first of all, they really take their time to tell the stories that they want to tell. The podcast is about half an hour long and they tell three stories in total. About musicians from Israel and Palestine who make music together, about young actors who want to change the notion of Zionism in Jer Jerusalem, and about a cook in Berlin, in Germany, who wants to bring together people from all sides of the conflict. And one of the good things about the podcast is that they put a lot of effort in actually talking to people. They don't just use information anyone can find. And two stories are told by reporters on the ground, and the one story where they couldn't get to talk to people in person, they use a Skype interview, but you can really hear the opinions of the people there. That sounds great, Valerie. Um, you're saying that there are three individual stories. Does the podcast actually manage to explain the complexity of the conflict in the Middle East? In, in my opinion, I think they really do. And also they have a great way of doing it because they start on the personal level of all the, the three stories and then they get to the bigger picture. For example, at one point the reporter asks one of the musicians, so, but what is the reality? And he replies, ooh, it's complicated. And of course, the reporter then could just ask another question right now, but she doesn't. She just waits. And so the musician keeps on talking. He tries to elaborate. And in the end, we really understand what his reality looks like. I'm definitely going to listen to that podcast. <laughs> you should. And what is your next tip for me? What should I read, listen to or watch? Well, I found an article that explains an environmental crisis in depth. It was actually a piece that a journalist called Patrick Kingsley wrote for The Guardian. That sounds interesting. What is it all about? It basically explains how climate change is forcing Mongolian herders to move to the capital of their country. It's interesting because the article is based on interviews with people from Mongolia, a bit like your podcast on the Israel-Palestine conflict. That gives you a better insight into the situation. As I was saying, the herders are forced to move to the city because of climate change. 
The winters have become colder and the summers have become a lot hotter and drier. So the herders' livestock simply cannot survive in the winters and they can't harvest enough grass for their animals because of drought. So the livestock simply die from cold or hunger. Before, during the Soviet Union, the herders' state secured fodder and restricted the number of livestock for each herder. But since the fall of communism, herders have gotten more livestock. They now have to work without the help of the state that they were used to for so many years. But, but what happens when so many people move to the city? See, that's another thing that I also like about this article, because it takes time to describe the impacts that migration has on the city. There's not enough housing for people there, so the herders live in their tents in the outskirts of the city. They burn whatever they can find to keep themselves warm, and the fumes from their fire pollute the city. It's also difficult for Mongolian herders to get used to their urban way of life because it's so different from what they are used to. They're also having a hard time finding jobs because of their background in herding. With these positive examples of already existing slow news, we come to the end of the first episode of our own slow news department at Planet Mundus, an international radio in Aarhus, Denmark. After this introduction to the concept and need of slow news, We will now start to deliver real slow news to you every second week. Our podcast will be ready for the weekends when it's time to slow down in general. The next show therefore comes to you on Friday the 30th, when we will talk about people affected by crisis in their home countries while living in Denmark. Thank you for tuning in today and we hope that you'll join us again on the 30th by showing you actually the latest satellite picture of Slow down.